listening to the sermon podcast of Piggly Presbyterian Church. The following sermon is by the Reverend Dr. William Hess. Great to be here. Good morning. I, I want to say this first of all. Last the few weeks that I've been here, I've had guests from Westchester come over, and everyone has said what a wonderful church Paoli is. Uh, our son is in a wheelchair. Said this most accessible church he's been at. Uh, incredible, easy to get in and out of here. You're also friendly and wonderful. The music is great, both contemporary and traditional. Uh, this is a wonderful church, and I'm happy to be here. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm filling in for for uh, Jonathan. And uh, we're, prayers continue for Jonathan on a sabbatical. I'm sure he's learning things that he'll be much better able to deal with all of you when he returns. <laughs> and let's keep, keep him in our thoughts. It was a nice to see the surprise of Belize. Uh, years ago, we took 40 of our young people to Belize in a distant backwoods, uh, a small little uh, Spanish-speaking town. And uh, we led Vacation Bible School, built a pastor's uh, church. And uh, we were eaten alive by those noceums. That was, that was an incredible problem there. But we had a great time. And the kids all got t-shirts that said, unbelievable. <laughs> and everything, I, I love that, unbelievable. Great place and uh, thank you for your work. You are known as a mission church, a wonderful mission church, and God bless you for doing that. Uh, the attire this morning, here I am dressed like, you know, not easy for me to do this. I was so traditional with all the robe and everything. Um, years ago at First Press, we had the traditional service. We were very formal, and we did the 40 Days of Purpose uh, with Rick Warren. And the tapes that we had to look at, he was wearing these kind of shirts. So our staff sort of said, why don't we do that? So for 40 days of the, our service, where we usually had robes and stoles and the choir fully dressed, uh, we all walked in with Hawaiian shirts on, and it was amazing. The whole congregation, I was like, what's going on? What's taking place? And it was a lot of fun. And I serve a summer, all summer long, this will be my 13th season as the pastor of Christ Union Chapel, an interdenominational chapel, and way up in North Jersey, uh, you would not believe how beautiful North Jersey is. Sussex County, all the mountains and the bears and the streams and the lakes. And I serve a beautiful chapel right on a lake. And during COVID, we had to go outdoors. We, went, we began services on the lawn uh, outside and our attendance nearly tripled. And now we don't fit in the chapel. So after COVID, we've stayed outside. We all wear the Hawaiian shirts and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the interdenominational side of it's a challenge uh, from people more liberal, more conservative, the political days in which we live. But we come together and we praise the Lord and we try to think of the ways we are truly united as Christians and move forward in, in ways that are filled with peace. And so I'm thrilled to be with you this morning. Uh, one word, conversion. We're going to talk about that word today. I wish I had a couple hours to do it, but in a few uh, minutes, we're going to talk about conversion. What that means, how that affects your experience, and the journey we have as Christians together. And the passage, I'm going to one of the most famous conversion experiences of all, Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul. Meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. May the Lord bless to our understanding this reading of the, the Holy Word. Conversion. Miriam Webster defines it like this. The act or process of changing from one form or state to another. Miriam Webster. They also give a secondary definition. A successful attempt at scoring extra points in rugby or American football. So I guess we have a choice. Should I talk about Jesus or the Eagles? Uh, I think I'm professional obligation here today to talk more about Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. Conversion. Conversion. What does that word bring up in your mind? What are you thinking about when you're, oh, no, conversion. What's this going to be about? Well, in the eighth chapter of Acts, just before the passage that we read, Dr. Luke writes about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. An angel told Philip to go down to Gaza. There he met this Ethiopian court official who was in a chariot, and he saw this Ethiopian reading from the book of Isaiah. Philip asked him, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian answered, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, I don't have this written down here, so sound guys just wait for me for a moment. But that's one of the primary passages we have as pastors and Sunday school teachers and those of us who try to teach about the faith. How can I unless someone guides me? Praise be to God for all the people who do their best to try to guide people. And there was Philip. We do not have a full script of what was said, but Dr. Luke tells us that Philip uh, proclaimed to him the good news. 
the Ethiopian eunuch was convinced. He said, look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip baptized him. And I bring this up just briefly because conversion, there's no blinding light here. There's no vision. Uh, There's no great emotional, dramatic moment. It's just good, sound teaching. Philip guiding him. He gives his life to the Lord and is baptized. Conversion is not always dramatic. It's not always an emotional experience. I recall a a Jewish uh, physician at First Presbyterian Church who came to me and we had talked several times. And he finally came to the reasonable conclusion that his Judaism would not be repudiated by being a Christian. But he saw Christianity and Jesus as the fulfillment of his faith. There is really nothing emotional about it. I think I was more emotional when I baptized him than he was. It was a reasoned decision that Jesus was the fulfillment of his Jewish heritage and faith. But in chapter 9 of Acts, we clearly have one of the most famous conversion experiences of all. And there is a blinding light. And there is a voice that's booming out. As you recall, and I think you all know, Saul had official letters to track down Christians. At that point, it's one of the first titles we have of Christianity called the way. The way. Uh, From what? What do you think that comes from? I am the way, the truth, and, and the life. That's its earliest known as the way. The way. He has official documents to go and track them down when the light catches him and the voice speaks to him. And there is clearly an act, an act of conversion, a moment of conversion, a dramatic moment that he could look to. But there's also a process, because after that moment, he ends up with Ananias, who may, by the way, be one of the bravest early Christians in the history of time. We could go on and take so much of the risk Ananias must have been taking. He trusts the Lord to go to Paul, and Paul could have turned around in a moment and captured him and taken him back to Jerusalem. He could have lost his life, but he obeys. And in so doing, one of the greatest evangelists ever is born and converted. In both a dramatic act and a process of time with Ananias. Conversion. One of the great joys of pastoral ministry for me through the years has been hearing the stories of how people have come to faith in Jesus Christ. In our new member classes and in our officer training sessions, we would ask the question for those who would like to talk about it, how have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And you all have the freedom today to drift uh, anywhere during this sermon as long as you're thinking about how did I come to faith in Jesus Christ. How did that happen for me, genuinely, truly? The majority of the stories that I heard as a Presbyterian were not dramatic emotional experiences, though there were some. Most were about being raised in a Christian home, going to Sunday school, singing in the choir, youth group, confirmation class. Very few had Damascus Road experiences. Yes, some did. Some can point to a specific event in their life. Sometimes it followed a a death, a traumatic event. And I would also add, I have many dear friends that their first day of sobriety was when they gave their life to Jesus Christ. There are genuine moments of immediate conversions that take place. 
But for most of us, it's been quite the opposite. It's been a process of conversion that we should never be defensive about or feel like somehow that was less significant than the Damascus Road experience. I remember one young lady, we, our confirmation class every year, we had confirmation classes with 40 kids in them. And every one of the children was, or young, young uh, boys and girls, had to have an appointment with a pastor just before confirmation. And that was a moment in which the pastor would meet with them and talk about their faith and basically say, are you ready of your own free will to make a profession of faith in Jesus? Do you want to do that? Are you just doing it because your parents want you to? And most of them said, no, I, I want to do that. I had some that said, no, I'm not ready yet. And, and then I had the tough job of saying to the parents, all right, no, they're, they're not ready. Don't, don't get real emotional about it. It's not time for them yet to be genuine about that confession of faith. But I'll never forget one young lady who to this day is very active in the church. I said to her, are you ready to make this profession of faith in Jesus Christ? And she leaned forward, tears in her eyes, started to cry. She said, Dr. Hess, I've been waiting my whole life for this. I've been waiting my whole life for this. Don't apologize ever for your conversion that was a process of a Christian home, Sunday school, worship services, singing in a choir, youth group, that all led to you this day believing in Jesus Christ and following him. That's the first point of conversion. It can come in different ways. Dramatic or a long process that's his reason and not very emotional. My father-in-law was a United Methodist pastor, wonderful pastor. We had the greatest conversations about the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church, theology and background. One Sunday evening we were together. I had my, I think I have it sitting up here somewhere, my pastor's worship book. You know, we pastors have these for doing funerals and weddings and uh, ordination of officers. And this is the Presbyterian worship book. I've been around a long time. It's a little worn out, but I still have it. And uh, we were looking at reception of new members. Uh, when you people join the church, what kind of ceremony do you have in church to receive them? And in the Methodist church, when they had a reception, we looked at his book, there it was. When the new members were up there, the pastor would quote this passage from Joshua 24, verse 15. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a great passage. I've seen many people with that little plaque in their house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the verse is very clear in the Methodist pastor's book. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Well, then we looked at the Presbyterian worship book. I've got it in my hand. I'm reading directly from it. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Biblical. Both of them. One. Choose you this day whom you will serve. That's clear. United Methodist, Anabaptist theology, uh, freedom of choice, people making choice. Choose you this day whom you could serve. The other Presbyterian, historic Calvinist background, the sovereignty of God. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Conversion. It happens in different ways and we even have different beliefs in our denomination about how it happens. But this I am here to declare to you, conversion happens. It happens. 
It happened to me. And I bet it happened to you. And I wonder if you're able to articulate how you came to faith in Jesus Christ in a way that honors God, in a way that you could share with other people that would be meaningful. I suspect you have Christian friends who speak about being saved and being born again. And these dear folks have had very meaningful and real true experiences of their life that have turned them around. You never need to be defensive when they come to you and say, when were you saved? When were you born again? And if you don't have a specific moment like that, I would suggest this to you. We had a lot of people at First Press who uh, applied for teaching positions in Christian churches, conservative Christian churches. And they would call me and say, Dr. Hess, that on, the, on the form here, application form, it says, when were you saved? What do I say? I say, well... When you were confirmed, did you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Did you really? Yeah, I did. Well, put that date down. And they never got kicked out. They got jobs and, uh, <laughs> and they made it. You know, when, what about your story? Your story may be my mother prayed with me and I went to Sunday school and I loved church and I sang in the choir and I've always known of Jesus. He's been in my life forever. Don't feel defensive when that's the story that you have as your conversion. One of my favorite stories, I was at a conference where a pastor spoke. He, uh, he was an older pastor now, but he told about a time when he was called to a Presbyterian church in Mississippi. It was a small town. There were two Baptist churches, two pretty evangelical, independent congregations. And uh, this town, one cool thing about it, they had a monthly uh, prayer breakfast. And so the pastors and many of the members of the churches would get together. And that was a good thing to kind of just show some Christian unity. Um, but of course, he was at the Presbyterian church, a little more in a different spectrum of theology in that town. And at one of the first meetings, uh, at the first meeting, uh, one of the pastors was sharing his testimony and how he came to be Christ and how he was saved. And then he thought about it. He thought, oh, this new pastor in town's just here. So he turned to him and he said, well, you're, you're new to town. Would you, could you please stand up and tell us when you were saved? And my friend, the pastor, stood up and he said, gladly, gladly. He said, you know, it was on a Friday. And it was around three o'clock. I think it was around three o'clock. And, and Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At that moment, I was saved. And everybody was speechless. <laughs> At that moment, I was saved. At that moment, I was saved. You know, I believe that. I believe that too. And my life is very much so a, a, a process of conversion of all those things. But yet coming to a moment when the commitment to follow Jesus was much more serious. Conversion, an act or process of changing from one former state to another. Now, if we had hours to be together, I could tell you stories that are so wonderful of conversion that are, that are delightful. Uh, Lydia, she's the first European convert to Christianity in the Bible. Or go past the Bible, St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley. John Wesley was strangely warmed. Do you know that story? Well, I'm not gonna tell it to you. You got to go look it up. <laughs> A genuine conversion. David Livingston, Albert Schweitzer, C.S. Lewis, on and on it goes of people who had genuine conversion experiences. Some for whom it was an act, a specific dramatic moment. Others for whom it was a process over time that they came to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
But there's one story I'm going to finish with, and it's a good conclusion. It's a story that gives me to this day goosebumps. And it's a person for whom I'm, I'm concerned that more and more people as we go on don't know who she was, or it's a distant name of an old... She just died in 1978, not that long ago, really. We should know more about Helen Keller. Helen Keller. She was blind, and she was deaf from age two. She lived a life in isolation until God sent her what Mark Twain called the miracle worker, Anne Sullivan. Helen Keller learned to speak and to read and to write. She went to college and she graduated with honors. She dedicated her life to educating the world about responsibilities to those with disabilities. Long before the American Disabilities Act, long before we've all learned a great deal. And uh, I have a, a son, I've, I've always, well, I'm drifting now. I used to tell people, don't complain about those handicap access parking spots that are empty. If you don't have to park there, if you don't have a family member has to park there, praise God and walk the further distance as store. I want to hear you griping about it. We have all learned a great deal about those with disabilities and full inclusion of people who had to remain isolated years ago. Helen Keller was on the leading edge of teaching us that. And she received our nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And one who writes so articulately about Helen Keller is Philip Brooks, Bishop Philip Brooks, who was invited by Ann Sullivan to speak to Helen. And here in his own words is a description. I, I think it's phenomenal. Philip Brooks is writing. You see, that dear girl... The one who had never heard of spiritual things had only recently learned to, quote, hear at all through a fascinating series of hand signals pressed into her palm by her devoted teacher, Anne Sullivan. That child, deaf and blind, was named Helen Keller. And after Miss Sullivan asked me to speak to her, well, not to her directly, but through translation, I'll never forget the beaming smile on Helen's face, the way her hands moved rapidly in the hands of her tutor, Ann Sullivan. Miss Sullivan looked at me in wonder and she said, here's what Helen wrote back to her. I've always known there was a God, but until now I've never known his name. You know, we should, that should be in our American history books that everybody have it memorized. I've always known there was a God, deaf and blind. I've always known there was a God. I just didn't know his name. There with Bishop Brooks sharing the story of Jesus, she found her conversion. She continues, as time went on and she began to be noticed by the world, uh, Helen wrote to me and said, quote, even in the darkness of my isolation, I have never felt alone. I'll share this. One of my methodologies of ministry is to believe that everybody has the light and knowledge of God in them. It may be deeply depressed. It may be deeply wounded down within them. But somewhere as a pastor to every human being, however tragic it may seem to be, however distant they are from the ways of God, I believe there's the knowledge of God deep within them by our heavenly creator. It's there and just needs to be brought out and blossomed. Uh, even in the darkness of my isolation, I've never felt alone. Philip Brooks continues. He says, we can't know, can we, what our lives will amount to, what God will choose to use. 
I, I like the fact that he uses, God chooses to use us. He said, I'm honored to have put a great man to rest with words that comforted a grieving nation. Philip Brooks preached the sermon at Abraham Lincoln's funeral. Philip Brooks continues, I am grateful too to know the joy of choirs retelling the story of my visit to ancient Bethlehem. I wonder how many of you know what carol he wrote that we cherish. He continues, but I know when I pass into heaven and God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, it will be for a few simple words of redemption and love delivered to a child who would never have heard them. Well done, good and faithful servant. The conversion of Helen Keller. He writes, I didn't know Helen as I wrote my carol. She had not even been born. And yet it's uncanny how the verse captures the joy of salvation arriving silently to a deaf and blind child whose ears could not hear his coming, but whose heart had long recognized his presence. Philip Brooks says that he wrote this carol before she was born. But how uncanny that the words of this carol speak to the conversion of Helen Keller. And I don't know what else you remember from, from this story, except be proud of your conversion if it wasn't dramatic. If you can't say, this is when I was saved or born again, be so thankful for God who has chosen you through a process of conversion. I, I want you all to remember that. But secondly of that, when Christmas Eve comes and you're singing a little town of Bethlehem, I want you to be thinking of Helen Keller. I want you every Christmas Eve from this moment on, when you're singing a little town of Bethlehem, you think, Helen Keller, he's always been with me. I just didn't know his name. I just didn't know his name. That's in everybody somewhere. And Philip Brooks says, these are the words that uncannily speak of Helen Keller. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Conversion. The act or process of changing from one form or state to another, an act, dramatic, emotional, a process, reason, thoughtful, but somehow in both of them, it's that heart to which the dear Christ has entered in. Will you, will you pray with me, please? Loving God, we give you thanks. We praise you and thank you this day for parents and loved ones who help us to find the way. We thank you, dear God, for Sunday school teachers who tried to learn those lessons and dealt with us as difficult kids, sometimes in those classes, but they faithfully came to teach us your word. We thank you for youth group leaders who took us on retreats and helped us to find the joy of our faith. We thank you for everybody involved in the process of our conversion. And we thank you for the dear Christ who enters in. Dear Lord, we... Thank you this day for the world in which we live, that the presence of Christ is in places like Belize, 
the Ukraine. In places of great hardship and trouble, your hand reaches out through other folks to bring your peace and your love. We pray for the world all around us. As we heard earlier in the prayer, we live in some troubled times and so many difficult things. We pray for your hand of peace to be upon leaders who have difficult decisions to make. Guide them in that which is the way. We pray for all of our young people, so many who are graduating now, uh, facing issues of where is my future? Where do I go to school? What am I called to do or to be? We pray your Holy Spirit to guide them and lead them forward. We pray for this church, Paoli Presbyterian Church, for its ministries and its mission, for all who gather here, for those who wander in wondering what this is about, and who find a loving group of people with open arms ready to help and guide. We thank you for taking away from us judgmental spirits and giving us a spirit of love towards all people. And mighty God, we thank you so very, very much for our church that through the ages has stood against the, the gates of hell to continue to spread the good news and the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. We pray for any in this congregation who are sick or ill, who need the healing hand of the great physician Jesus Christ to be upon them in body, in mind, or in spirit. Lord, you know there have been several deaths here in this community in the past few weeks, and we pray for the families who have lost loved ones, and that you might grant to them the peace that passes understanding and the hope of the day when there would be that glad heavenly reunion. And Lord, we pray now as our Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.